We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners uh, again as we continue through our journey through Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 5 will be our chapter today that will be in question um, as we go through it and as we dissect it. May the Lord give us insight and wisdom um, to understand this grace that we have been given in which we stand. And hopefully we'll be able to kind of dissect what that means. So if this is your first time joining me, then uh, welcome. If this is a reoccurring time in which you have been joining for a while, welcome as well. So Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we'll get right into this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple things I want to address just real quick. One, the very first word, therefore, Paul is now linking what he is stating to a previously mentioned thought. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to my previous podcast over chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 even, in which I kind of address a, a very similar thread that Paul is is seemingly trying to incorporate into his entire teaching so far in the book of Romans. And one of those things is the concept of grace. Alright, so I've kind of gone at length on some of the previous ones, so I'm not going to necessarily do it again at length in some of the ways I've done before. But he also, I also want to address this concept of justification by faith. A lot of people think, and I believe it's misconstrued, is that we come into this um, justified state before God through Jesus Christ, and then we stay in that state for the entirety of our salvation. Like... We come in justified by faith, and then no matter what we do or don't do, we remain justified all throughout our salvation until the very end. And I'm just going to tell you, that's not the case. That is a misconstrued um, aspect or idea of what the scriptures really say. Because James 2 tells us, you see, a person is not justified by faith alone, but by works. And I've talked about this at length. Over the previous podcast, what I will say is this, is we have been brought into an approved standing before God through our faith in Jesus Christ, more so I'd say, through our position in Jesus Christ. But there is a responsibility of the believer to remain in that condition, to remain in that approved state. For instance, let me quote what 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 says. Do your best to present yourself before God as one approved. Notice he doesn't say as one um, approved before men. It's as one approved before God. Now, Now, just let that sink in because justification is essentially a word that means approval. You have been placed in an approved standing. But as the scriptures teaches, we have to do our best to present ourselves before God as one approved, a workman who has no need um, to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So if I go and I mishandle truth, the word of God that he's given to us in this new covenant, and I mishandle that, I would not be approved before God. Now there's other passages that I could, I could kind of unpack for you to show that our justification before God um, through the person of Jesus Christ that we come into this justified state but we do have a responsibility to remain in that approved state before God namely is what Philippians 1 I think it's 8 through 10 talks about when he says um, approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless before Christ on that last day, and I paraphrase that. You can go look at that, and you can go look at Second Peter 3, I believe it's in 14 through 18, when he talks about it, when he says, um, may we be kept without spot or, blem- or blemish on the day of Christ. If I could have a spot or blemish, that means that I might not be approved before God. 
And so this concept I've unpacked in depth. What I do want you to understand is we have been brought into an approved standing from darkness unto light, from being lost to being found, from being dead to being alive, to being an enemy of God, to now being a friend of God. We have been changed from that position to now being in a position of right standing with God through the person of Jesus Christ. But there is a responsibility of the believer to remain in that position. This is why it talks about the key word in scripture called abide. It's a Greek word meno. And it means to remain, to tarry in the condition in which one currently is. To stay. And it says, Jesus tells us in John 15, abide in me and I'll abide in you. He says, remain in me. There is a position for the believer in which we must remain in. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, notice the past tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to dissect this word through. It's a very simple dissection of it, but it's a very key dissection of this word because it's littered throughout this entire chapter. This word through is the Greek word dia, and it means um, the means or the channel in which one is able to come unto something um, on the other side. So you think about it like the Panama Canal, right? This thing was, was built as a, as a channel, as a means for somebody to get from one ocean to the other ocean, and there was this barrier between that the ship literally could not get through. It was impossible. You couldn't get through. So in this instance, you could not have peace with God. It was impossible. There was no way to truly be at peace with God. So God made a way. God carved out this channel out of this land in which this boat could not get through. So now he made a way. And that boat now can transfer from one place to the other. And he says for us, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So again, the same word, this dia, this Greek word that's used there is this, it's the means. It is the channel that has now been carved out for us. That in one way, it was impossible to go from this to this. And I know you can't see my hand gestures, but I'm one who uses my hands and I'm doing stuff with my hands right now. Um, so, so from this, you know, I'm, I'm like, eh, never mind, forget it. Um, it was impossible for us to go to one, from one side to the other. So God has made a way for us through Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just say it's only through Jesus Christ. He actually includes something else into the equation. By faith. He has carved out through Christ a channel and it's open to anybody who wants to come in. Anybody, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Ephesians 2, I'm going through that with my kids. We just finished Ephesians 2. We started on Ephesians 3 um, Saturday morning and we just finished Ephesians 3 this morning. And it's crazy how it's paralleling so much with what I'm talking about in Romans. Jesus has in himself made peace through the cross. And this peace was, there was this hostility between the Jews and Gentiles because the Jews were God's chosen people, the Gentiles were not. They were the ones who were not predestined to be part of his plan, his kingdom, if you will. The Jews were. But now that Christ has come in, God has said, I am bestowing access or this channel is now open for anyone who would want to come in. I'm not predestining a certain elect. I'm not saying that you're destined to come to heaven through Jesus Christ and you're destined to go to hell apart from him. He says, I'm allowing everyone to come into this channel if you would submit to me in faith. And what is that faith? It's what Matthew 16, 16 through 18 says, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon this rock, he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He says, it is that declaration of faith and that surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as that master of your life. Because you recognize and understand as Peter did whenever he stood on that boat and the fish were breaking the boats and they were sinking the boats. And Peter fell down on his knees and he says, I am a sinful man. I am unworthy to be in your presence. He understood who Jesus was. When we understand who Jesus is as the son of the living God. 
and we surrender and submit to him, as Romans 10 talks about, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. You get to enter in through this channel that God has carved out of that landmass that was impossible for that ship to go through. And he says, and you will find on the other side this approved state, this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, access into this grace in which we stand. You now have this access, which is a Greek word, I don't know if I can say, prosegeogei. It means an, an admission. So when he says that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, he says, Jesus is that channel that was carved out, and your faith brings you through this channel to the other side so that you have access through Jesus Christ to this grace that's on the other side that you didn't have before. You see, it's only through Christ that grace is extended to humanity. We did nothing for God to, to say, oh no, you're worthy now of this grace for me to extend this to you through Jesus Christ. It was in our unworthiness that he said, I'm extending this grace, but you can't get to it until I made a way. Enter Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. We have got to understand this. It wasn't through the medium of the law. It wasn't through any other source in which a person could come into this grace that God has extended to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And it is so vital we understand what grace truly is. It is not just simply unmerited favor, though there is an illustration of that within the concept of grace. Grace is God's power on high given unto man. So that we might live out that impossible life. The same life that Jesus lived. He says, my grace is what will enable you to do that. However, here's where a lot of people miss it. Grace was freely extended to us. It was on the other side of that landmass. We couldn't get there. God made a channel. He made a way. That person is Jesus Christ. We come in through Jesus Christ into this grace. It was unmeritedly extended to us. But in order for it to be applied to our account... In order for us to utilize the substance of grace, it costs us. We have to prove ourselves worthy to get it. There is a requirement for grace to be utilized. You get to go into it and you have access to it, but that doesn't mean that you're spending the money of it. Think about it in terms of like a bank. You might have a key card that gets you into the vault, but then you're going to have some that you're going to have to utilize what's in the vault. Listen to what he goes on to say. He says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not, not only that. In fact, actually, let me, let me back up real quick. So in, in Hebrews chapter 4, I want to camp out on this concept of grace just, just real quick. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that we have a throne of grace that we can boldly come before to receive grace and help in time of need. He says there's this throne because we have been given access unto this throne of grace through the person of Jesus Christ. By faith, we have been given access unto this throne. He says, if you are ever in need, if you ever need my power, you have a place to come to get it. But let me just tell you, the access to that place does not mean that you are utilizing what he has to give to you. That requires faith. And primarily, humility. You see, faith is that key card that has gotten us into that access, but humility is what applies it to our account. This is why it says twice, once in James 4, verse 6, and I believe it's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, that grace is given to the humble. In fact, you come before him in pride, you won't get anything. I gave an analogy about this going through chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is where it gets a little bit um, I wouldn't even say difficult because it makes sense to me. But when you grow up thinking that grace is just unmerited favor, you could do nothing to get it and you couldn't do anything to earn it. That there was, it didn't matter on your action or your inaction. It was just God's just his free gift to you no matter what. And he's given it to you no matter what. At his discretion. You don't have to earn it. If that's how you see grace, then maybe it is confusing, but it's just not how I see it. I see an aspect of whenever I was not in the position of Jesus Christ, that God freely extended that grace to me, and I did nothing to earn it. I did nothing to earn him saying, I'm going to extend this to you, so that you would have an access to come to me. 
But once my position changes and I've brought from death unto life and I've now been enlightened into this, this grace and into the, the cross and to the gospel and to the person of Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden my, my relationship with grace has changed. Now I come into it and God says, now you're here, you have access. But in order for you to utilize that power, it's going to cost you. You look in Titus 2, 11 through 14, when it talks about it's the grace of God that trains us. It's not his, simply just his unmerited favor, it's his power. Same thing as he talks about in 2 Corinthians 11 through 12, when Paul talks about it, and he says that, you know, about the thorn, I talk about this in chapter 3, that um, Paul writes and he says this thorn in the flesh was given him, and, and he was having to learn how to rely upon the power of Christ. But he was asking in the, in the beginning, this goes into what we're about to talk about, he was asking for the suffering for the sake of Christ to, to be um, taken away from him. He's like, just give me a reprieve. Suffering for you is becoming such a burden and I don't think I can bear it any longer. And so he asked three times for this thorn to be removed from him. And Jesus comes back and he says, no, I'm not going to remove the sufferings from my name. I'm not going to remove the trials and the tribulations and the sufferings and the, all those various things. I'm not going to remove those from your life. Because you need to rely upon my grace, for my grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Meaning when you are weakened for the sake of the gospel, God's grace is that strength that we tap into in order to achieve the impossible. You and I, even in the position of Jesus Christ, do not have it in our own pockets in order to live out the Christian life. We don't have the strength, we don't have the power to do it. That is the weakness he's referencing in 2 Corinthians 12. You and I don't. He does. And in order for us to grab hold of that power and utilize it and reckon it to our account and be able to actually walk in it, in the substance of it, it requires faith and humility. Let me just say, if there's any requirement whatsoever, I don't care to the slightest degree, then it cannot be construed as unmerited in its most basic and generalized definition. Is there an aspect of it? Yes. Can't deny that. That has to be. When I am not in the position of Jesus Christ, grace was unmeritedly extended to me. But if there is the slightest requirement, then it cannot be considered unmerited in every aspect of what grace is. So the most basic definition of grace is power. So we have been given access under this power, but for that power to actually be utilized, it's going to cost you. Let me, let me break it down to you because it's such an important concept for us to get. When we were building our house, um, I used to draw like this little fancy, it wasn't fancy, um, I, I do stick figures. Um, I used to draw this diagram for people whenever I was explaining the concept of grace. And um, so I'm going to have to explain it to you without the drawings. When we were building our house, uh, it was just a simple metal framed house, um, we got all the structure up, and when we got time for the electric, we ran all the wire. We put the wires through, through the walls, we, we popped them out through the, where the walls would be, and, and have where our receptacles are going to be, and all the light switch and all that stuff. We ran all the wire in there. And so this house is, was now prepared for electricity, but it didn't have it. Uh, you, you, we put the drywall up, we did the tape and bedding, we painted everything. It looked like everything was there, but it just did not have the power coming in until we did what? Until we actually set up an account with the one who is the power distributor, and they flipped the switch for power to come in. See, I could have cut the cable, and nothing would have happened to me. But once the power came in... Once I had access to the power, you go take a scissors to that cable and you're going to know that there's a power that exists there. However, no one could see that power until I started flipping the switches on the inside. You see, the power distributor had granted me access to the power, but until I flipped on the switches on the inside, you couldn't see the power at work. In the same way in our lives, with grace, God has given us, He has wired us as human beings to be receivers of grace. But until we set up the account with the power distributor, we don't have it utilized. 
But just because we set up the account and he turns on the switch and he flips it and he says, you have access now to it, you don't see the working of that unless I start flipping on the switches on the inside. You see, that's how grace works, is we have been given access. That power flows through us when we come into Christ. But it's not tapped into and utilized and become evidenced in people um, around us to be able to see the work of that unless we start flipping on the switches. It's called sanctification. And how we get sanctified? I'm so glad you asked because Paul's about to give us that because these two concepts go hand in hand. He says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Is it just because there's a scripture that says uh, rejoice always? And again, I say rejoice. No matter what circumstance you're in, you should always rejoice. Is that the only No, because it produces something in us. He says sufferings, uh, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's that word again, dia, through. The Holy Spirit is the channel to understanding God's love. It's just why in Ephesians 3, um, Paul prays that for the church, starting, I think it's in verse 14 through the rest of the chapter. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That you would understand the love that God has for you. It is deep and it is high and it is far and it is wide. And it's beyond anything that we could even comprehend in our flesh. But praise God, he gives the spirit so that we could understand the mind of God according to what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says. So that we could understand the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Guys, this is a really big deal. We have been given access unto this grace. And how do we learn how to utilize that grace to our account? We suffer for the name of Christ. I want you to think about that. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Why would it be any different? Hebrews 5 tells us that. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. So let me just tell you, when we like to, and I want to be very careful with this because it talks about no matter what situation we're in to always give thanks, right? I want to be careful what I say here, but I also want to, um, to not just kind of like tiptoe around the subject. Oh, I hear a lot of people who talk about that we're so thankful that in America we don't have to suffer for the name of Christ. That we have freedom of religion. That we, that we are free to meet and congregate together and sing praises to God. And while maybe there's an aspect of giving thanks, I can't necessarily say that I rejoice in that. Because what I see in the scriptures is I see what suffering for the name of Christ produces in those who live for Him. That if I'm not suffering for Christ, can I really have the fullness of hope? Paul says this in Romans 5, what we were just talking about. He says, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. If I'm not suffering, can I truly have hope? I look at people in other countries who it's not free for them to practice Christianity, and they have more hope than so many people, probably even including myself. They have a deeper character to where they look more like Christ than what most people in America could even grasp. And why is that? It's because they suffer for the name of Christ. Because suffering is the building block and the sanctifying work that God uses in order to produce Christ in us. So if we consider it such a blessing that we are free, if we consider it such a blessing that we don't have to be persecuted, I just I consider it a greater blessing to look like Jesus Christ. Does that mean that I'm wishing that America would, would become this um, cesspool of sin and that people would just be completely turned away from Christ so that those who are living for Him would shine like stars, as Daniel would say? And that we would just be persecuted every turn? I'm not saying that I'm wishing that upon America. I'm, 
I want to be careful on that because I do want to give thanks, but at the same time, I cannot rejoice in this so-called concept of freedom of religion. Because I know it has made us weak. And any time that suffering is not present for the cause of Christ in the life of a believer, weakness ensues. And so Paul is putting together this concept. It's almost an identical concept that he, that he relates to us in 2 Corinthians. I, I always get it confused. I think it's 2 Corinthians 12. Um, but let me make sure. Yeah, it's 2 Corinthians 12. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. When you are insufficient in and of yourself and you are being weakened for the sake of the gospel because you don't have the power in and of yourself in your flesh to be able to stand against these things, you have to learn how to rely on grace. He just talked about the concept of grace and how we've been given access unto this grace. And then he follows it up with suffering. He says, you've got to learn how to rely upon my grace and you've got to let that grace train you unto godliness. But you can't truly be trained unto godliness without suffering. In the same way, if you want to build muscle, if you want to actually get in shape, it's called diet and exercise. And let me just tell you, as I'm sure anyone who has ever put their hand to the plow of trying to exercise, it is suffering. You are literally tearing your muscles when you're lifting weights. You are literally um, extending your lungs and your cardiovascular um, capacity. You are extending that by, by basically... Uh, pushing yourself to the limit. It doesn't feel good to go run for two miles and make it to where your heart rate's going up to 140, 150 and you're having a hard time breathing and your thighs are burning and your ankles might be hurting or you've got shin splints or something's going and you push through the pain and you get home and you've got to ice your shins or you've got to just simply gorge yourself with water because you've just expelled all that sweat. Or you're lifting those 40-pound dumbbells and you're trying to go at it and work your biceps or work your triceps or work your chest and you're literally feeling that lactic acid kind of filling up inside and it is burning your muscles and you're like, i got to get three more reps. It hurts to train. It's no different for training yourself for godliness. It should hurt. If it doesn't hurt, if it doesn't cost you, then you're not training well. If you don't have pushback against it. I, I was meeting with this guy one time. at Dairy Palace is a local restaurant out here, as if you know about that. <laughs> um, and I hadn't really talked to him in about six months. And I, I actually, I don't remember if he reached out to me or if I reached out to him. Either way, we went up and we were meeting up there. And I was like, hey man, how, how are things going in life? And he's like, man, things are good. I mean, things with my wife are good. Things with my kids are good. Things with my job are good. Everything is actually really good. Like, I, I got nothing. I got no struggles right now. Everything's good. And he just had this revelation in that moment where he said, everything is so, quote unquote, blessed in my life that I'm not in the mark of the enemy. So I'm not, I'm not uh, on the bullseye. I'm not in the, in the scope of the enemy. He doesn't have to do anything to me because I'm coasting. I'm taking life easy. I'm actually enjoying the things of this world more than I am of Christ. So the enemy, he doesn't have to come after me. Does that describe you? Is, is the grace of God not being formed to the fullness of what it could be in you because you're coasting? I mean, I can tell you that's been part of, of my thing over the last two or three years is I, I was full throttle, hand to the plow for probably 12 to 13 years. And when things get so difficult and so hard... It's easy to want to do what Paul did. Lord, just have him stop. Just let me have a reprieve. But the problem is with the reprieve is that reprieve for a month turns into a year. And then it turns into three years. And then before you know it, it becomes your way of life and you're no longer pressing into the Lord. And as a result, the Lord is no longer 
He's no longer um, producing Christ in you. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that you look at this passage in Acts chapter 6 when it talks about Stephen. And he says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Maybe the fullness of grace is not being manifest in you and I because we are not suffering as we ought. So therefore the character and the endurance and the hope is not being fully produced in us. And we're not full of grace. We're not full of wisdom. It's always been a, a, a thing for me that's like baffled me as to why he says full. Full of grace. Full of wisdom. Full of faith. He wasn't partial. He was full. And why was he full? It's because he was training. Guys, we can't get away from this concept as I think we have in the American church today. We've stopped training and we want to call ourselves good. What does that verse in 2 Timothy uh, 2.15 say again? Do your best to present yourself before God as one approved. Are you doing your best? Are you um, rejoicing in the sufferings that you suffer for Christ? Are you allowing that suffering to have its full effect in you? This is what James 1, 2-4 says. Because this is a possibility on this side of heaven. I hate it. I hate it when people talk about we will never look like Christ on this side of heaven. I can't stand it. Because the word of God says otherwise. In fact, it's our commission. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, Anyone who says that they abide in Him ought to walk in the same way which He walked. It means your life should look like His. And the reason that it might not is because you aren't training yourself for grace as the way that you need to be. James 1, 2-4, He says it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And this is our job. Let steadfastness have its full effect in you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now I want you to think about that. Because what he doesn't say is that you would just become mature. He actually finishes it off and he says that you would lack in nothing. There would be nothing more needed for you to look like Jesus. Is what he's stating. Let steadfastness. Why would you need steadfastness? Because something's coming against you. It's called the sufferings and the trials. Let it have its full effect in you. That you may be perfect and complete. Two different words there. Lacking in Nothing. Commonly quoted verse today, oftentimes in the wrong light, you'll see football players have it, you know, on on their eye black that they wear underneath their eyes or whatever. People quote it for how far they can throw a football or if they can win a championship. And let me just tell you, it has nothing to do with that. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know what that verse means? It means that there is nothing that God has commissioned us to. And that is even to imitate Christ. There is nothing that he has commissioned us to. That he has not given us the grace and the ability in order to accomplish here on earth. I can do all things which God has commanded for me in Christ. You want to love like Christ loved? You have the ability. You want to go out there and live a sinless life? Through the power of Jesus Christ and the access that he has given to us into this grace in which I am now able to stand against the schemes of the enemy and even against my own flesh. As 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that I have the authority through Christ in order to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. 
I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that it's, you know, it's, it's a probable thing that every Christian can go out there and we could actually walk as Jesus walked, that we could have authority over sin, that we wouldn't have to let sin have an authority over us. I'm not saying that that's probable or that it's an easy road. I'm saying it's a hard road, but what I'm saying is it's possible. Because of the grace in which we have been given access to through the person of Jesus Christ by the faith and the humility that we then exercise and actually show unto the Father in that throne of grace. And he says, then I'll give you whatever you need to utilize it to your counsel so that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You see, this is what the Word teaches. But because we have grown up in such a, a, an indoctrinated society in a church today in which we have been told, no, that's not possible. No, you can't. And we misconstrued the context of certain passages of while, yes, before I came into Christ, it was impossible. Before I came into Christ, it was impossible. But once I have come into Christ, doesn't he say that all things are possible for him who believes? Those are Jesus' words. All things are possible for him who believes. We've stopped believing as the church that all things are possible through Christ. We've stopped believing that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We've stopped believing that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Meaning that His divine power, namely grace, has bestowed upon us through the person of Jesus Christ. And we have been given everything we need to live out a life of godliness on this earth. Becoming partakers of the divine nature. Ephesians 1, he tells us, he says that we have been granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means that you and I, through the person of Jesus Christ, have been given access unto everything that Jesus had access to. Including wisdom and power and grace and love. So if you're part of the victimized who have been listening to a teaching that waters down and diminishes what grace truly is and what it has done, then I'm going to tell you, you need to start standing up for that. And if you're part of the deceit in that, in which you are propagating that from the pulpit, then you need to turn and repent. Because that is not the Word of God. You need to study more to show yourself approved and rightly handle the Word of Truth. We all have work to do in understanding the Word of God. We all still need to be sanctified. But let me just tell you, when the Word is congruent with itself, you don't need to be sanctified. You just need to take it for what it says and believe it. So I'm going to read this last part. I'm going to kind of wrap this up, hopefully, in the next seven to ten minutes. Because for me... That, those first five verses, I know I've talked about it before in some of the previous chapters. But I guess I'm more like Peter in 2 Peter 1 when he says, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth. I'm, I'm going to intend to always remind you of this because I don't ever want you to forget. And as Peter says, so that after my departure, if this podcast channel ever stops, if I end up dying, if anything ever happens, I want you to be able to recall these things. Because through repetition, I constantly reminded, though you already knew it and were established in the truth, I'm reminding you of those same things because they are so important. And I think that's why Paul addresses this concept in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and now get into 5. And he addresses it in every single letter that he ever writes because he begins and ends with the concept of may grace be multiplied to you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul talks about this concept of grace over and over and over in hopes that we as the church would understand that grace is so much more than just unmerited favor. It is the power of God from on high. The divine influence is actually the word charis of what it means. The divine influence. It is God in heaven divinely having an influence upon people on earth. And that influence has a requirement to it. For one, you have to come into Jesus Christ 
through faith. He was the channel to get you to the other side. And we got to the other side. And now we've been given access under this grace. But to utilize it requires your humility before God. So he goes on and he says this. In verse 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What a beautiful passage. This is the concept of grace being unmeritedly extended. God said, I'm opening up this sea. The sea that's on the other side of the land and you're on the opposite end. And it's impossible for you to get there. So I'm going to make a way regardless of you. In fact, you are ungodly and you are a sinner. You are totally undeserving of me sending my son to be brutally murdered by mankind. The very ones that I'm sending him to save. And I'm going to open up this channel. So that people who were ungodly, people who were sinners, people who were my enemies, people who were dead in their trespasses, could actually find their way through. That is the concept and notion as to how grace was unmeritedly given to us. But again, when my relationship with Christ changed, so did my relationship with grace and the requirement for it. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Notice, he doesn't say while we are still sinners. I hate the concept when people say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you were a sinner saved by grace. You're not supposed to remain as one. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, meaning we have been brought into this approved and right standing before God through the blood of Christ. But this is not denoting that we do not have a responsibility to remain in this position. He says this. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now this comes into Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 25. You could even take it into verse 31. And I would encourage you to go read that. Because it makes it very clear that even for the believer, starting in verse 26, going on through 31, that we have a responsibility to make sure that we do not go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. You could go into Ephesians chapter 5 where it says that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of dis- disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. You could go into Revelation chapter 18 and 19 where it talks about fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And he says the wrath of God is coming upon her. So you need to come out of her so that you do not partake in that same wrath of God. That means that even as a believer, you could come under the wrath of God. Because it is our position in Christ that has been brought, brought us into the standing in which we are able to stand. But we must remain in that position. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word again. Through whom, there's that word again, we, whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus has become the source. He has become the channel in which we navigate through that channel to find the grace on the other side. But in order to utilize that grace, it costs us. In order to live out the godly life that we have in Christ Jesus, it costs us. You will suffer if you are not suffering for the cause of Christ. I'm not talking about, you know, your dog dies. One of the hardest days of my life is the dog that I had from when I was like in eighth grade until even a handful of years after being married to my wife. So like 10 years, 12 years. One of the hardest days of my life is watching that dog die. Of seeing her get cancer and having to be put down because she wasn't going to survive in any other way but through just pain. She was 10 years old. And then having to bury her in that casket as my dad built this little casket for her. And we dug a hole and we put her down in there and we had a little funeral for her. Some of y'all might think that's sappy, but for me, this was one of my best friends. She was with me when I went to college. She was with me all throughout high school. She was with me even in our first years of marriage. She was like our first kid. 
one of the hardest days of my life, but that's not the suffering the scripture teaches. The suffering the scripture teaches is when you press into the name of Jesus Christ and you suffer as a result of it. You look in Colossians 1, 22-23 when it says, again, this concept that just because you have come into Christ and you have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ does not mean that you are in that position for all of eternity for the rest of the time no matter what. Because listen to what he says in Colossians 1, 21-23. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. Now one could say, well, that's actually just proving that they were... Still, that they were actually truly saved. But what does Paul mean in Romans chapter 8, 17 when he says this? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You, you see the little distinction there? Paul actually includes himself. He says that I'll find glorification in the end if I suffer with him in this life. Paul includes himself. I mean, you can find the same concept in Galatians 6, 7 through 10, whenever he talks about it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap corruption. If we sow to the spirit, we'll reap eternal life. And then Paul says this, and we will reap if we do not give up. What is Paul saying? He says, I will reap the eternal life in the end that has been promised to me through the person of Jesus Christ if I sow to the spirit. So if I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing in the end, God will render to each one according to the works, is what Romans chapter 2 says. To those who by... Um, oh, what does he say? Let me turn back to it. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That means you and I have to do something in order to remain in him. Namely, continue in the faith. You want it to be even more clear... And, and man, may God give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. Because all I'm doing is simply just taking what Scripture teaches and now applying it to truth and to doctrine. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. If it needs to get any more clear, because I would really hope that you and I both believe that Paul was a born-again believer. I mean, I could even take it to Philippians chapter 3 when he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Jesus Christ. And he says that I am doing everything I can that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I have a race to run. I have a faith to keep. I have a fight to fight. And when I finish that, when I finish what I was called to do, after done everything that I could, my hope is, is that I attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he had to do something to get to that hope. Listen to what he says here. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Notice the plurality there, but that's about the shift. So I. Paul says there's, a, there's this imperishable wreath in the end. It's called eternal life. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. That's a Greek word, adokimos. It means to be not approved. What did justification mean? Oh, that's right. Approved. Paul says that I... He's not saying we, he's not saying you as if it's the question of your salvation and that you're not persevering in it is actually just simply you proving you were never really saved. Paul is saying, if I don't endure to the end, I will be unapproved before him. I keep reading in chapter 10, you're going to find the context has nothing to do with him not, no, no longer being able to preach to others. It's actually him getting to run the race, because that's the context of the passage. In a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Paul is saying it very clearly. I have a job to do. 
I've got to learn how to rely upon this grace and live out this godly life in Christ Jesus. I can't take it easy. I can't take it lightly. I can't seek to escape the suffering and just coast through this life and think that in the end that I might stand approved just because at one time when I was nine years old, I gave my life to Jesus and I said, hey, I really want you to be the Lord of my life and I came to him and maybe I was very genuine in that and think that that proclamation when I was nine years old holds weight all the way to the eternity in the end and me not do something with it. Ever read the parable of the talents? But in this passage, and when she says it, I want you to understand one thing here. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the ungodly, God showed his love for us. And he sent Christ to die for us as the ungodly. How does this work with the notion of self-defense? I know here in America, we're real big on self-defense, the right to bear arms, the right to be able to defend ourselves. Somebody breaks into our home. But let me just tell you, I could care less what the Constitution says if it conflicts with the Word of God and the example that we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ died for us, and that was the love of God manifest through the person of Jesus Christ, if He went to the cross while I was a sinner and ungodly, then how the heck... Can I uphold the notion of saying that when somebody is ungodly, who is separated from God, who's living in darkness, who is dead in their trespasses and sins, in which I also had once walked in, and they come in and they try to hurt me and harm me, or say they try to put me on a cross, how dare I drop the cross of Christ and retaliate and seek to save my own life? It flies in the face of the gospel. And how dare we receive such a kindness and mercy and love for ourselves, but not be willing to apply it to others. And we'll pick up part two in verse 12 on my next podcast. And I hope you continue to join because I guarantee you that if you do, the Spirit is speaking. And may He give you ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You'll be blessed.